Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Health on the Line. By the time you hear this, the worst of the heatwave will have passed. But these few days have added yet more pressure to a system which was already finding it hard to deal with the combination of unprecedented demand, stretched capacity, and yet another wave of COVID. Despite the progress we've seen on the longest waiters and in other vital areas, many leaders I speak to say the pressure is in some ways more intense than during the pandemic. And yet, already thoughts are turning to what is bound to be an incredibly tough winter. As I've written in a Confed blog this week, we need to try to approach winter in ways that model the future we want to see. Greater collaboration within the health service, with our local government and third sector partners, a greater focus on prevention, health inequalities, richer public engagement. Of course, this is a tall order, but we have somehow to try to use today's challenges as a way of building a bridge to the future. But a bridge can't be built on delusion and deceit. As we watch the race to Downing Street unfold, we have said that the NHS and the public need a realism reset from politicians. The 40 new hospitals pledge is a cynical hoax. Social care has not been sorted, and our colleagues in social care are in desperate need of extra support. Nor is the NHS awash with money. Soaring inflation and ongoing COVID costs actually mean a real terms decrease in funding this year. And we've seen the latest figures from the Royal College of Physicians showing that staff shortages are particularly acute and worsening within qualified medical professions, something that's really worrying. I've met many hard-working NHS staff who are doing their utmost to help services recover from the pandemic, but they remain severely overstretched and under-supported. That's why we urgently need a commitment to deliver and publish a fully funded workforce plan across health and care. Without one, the NHS will not have the capacity to make greater progress in reducing treatment backlogs or deal with surges in demand due to rising COVID cases or extreme weather or anything else. It's that simple. In other news, we've also called this week on the government to urgently reconsider its decision to scrap vocational BTEC courses in health and social care. Unless they do so, we think it risks severely exacerbating the workforce crisis. Why? Because this could put at risk an important health staffing pipeline that allows thousands of potential nursing and midwifery recruits to join degree courses each year. Healthcare leaders have told us clearly that this could stymie an already very fragile health and social care recruitment sector at a time when both the NHS and social care are plagued by staff shortages. So we've been following closely the debate about the BTEC in Parliament. And as we're talking ICSs in this podcast... I should tell you that part of our support offer at the Confed includes our leading integration peer support programme, one that we run in partnership with NHS providers and the LGA. The programme delivers a range of free bespoke support for local health and care systems to help leaders to strengthen their leadership and accelerate their partnership ambitions at system, place and neighbourhood levels. For more information, email integration at local.gov.uk. I hope you enjoy this edition of Health on the Line and will tune in for the next one, in which I ask Sir Gordon Messenger to talk about his review of management and leadership and what he hopes will happen now.
New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. The NHS Confederation is proud to be the home of the Integrated Care System Network and delighted that all 42 ICSs have joined. Integrated Care Systems, as legally defined and mandated bodies, are only a few weeks old. But questions about how ICSs should work, how the different parts of the ICS construct fit together, how ICSs can add value working through partners at system, place and locality level, these questions are at the front of health leaders' minds. The CONFED is providing a range of resources and services to ICSs, and I'll talk a little more about one of them at the end. But for this edition of Health on the Line, I'll be talking to someone who has a great deal of experience in developing an integrated care system, in leading a local authority, and who will now be leading the integrated care partnership. So how does it all fit together? And what will be the key success factors as we try to make the new system work in the very challenging circumstances in which we find ourselves? So I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Oliver. Tim is chair now i think tim of the integrated care partnership but you were chair of surrey heartlands ics and your leader of surrey county council have i got all your titles right tim indeed you have that's absolutely right wow (laughs) (laughs) there must be times you're not sure yourself well i could add on to that actually that i'm also the chair of um the surrey um health and well-being board Oh right, and is that a place level body? That's well, that's well, yeah, for the whole, uh, the whole of oh, but I'll whole system. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I mean, so I guess I mean I want to get into all sorts of issues, but I mean this is part of the challenge, isn't it? That that those of us who are in this kind of world have an understanding of what these different terms mean, but it, it's not easy if you're outside the health world to understand it, is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I, you know, I make that same point that the NHS has its own language and so does local government. And it's very, very easy uh, for all of us to fall into the trap of, of talking jargon. Uh, you know, the NHS is probably a little worse than local government in terms of its three letter acronyms. Uh, but uh, yeah, part of this part of this whole reset uh, is it has to be about engaging and communicating with our residents on in, in a way that they understand. So I think I'm right in saying that Surrey Heartland started working as an integrated care system three years ago. Although your status has for, you know formally changed on July the first, this is a kind of smooth transition. So, so I guess the first question, Tim, is is what has been your experience? What have you learned from these years leading up to the point at which it all becomes kind of legal? So I think the, the biggest thing I've learned uh, or reinforced is that this is uh, about all about partnership working, that no organisation within the, the whole ecosystem can do it on its own. Some of this is about personalities, but actually if you get the structure right, you can make a significant uh, steps and improvements. So bringing together all of the key influences and stakeholders in a room so that actually you align uh, the the agenda or or get behind a a vision. If you can do that, uh, then you can can really have a significant impact. And what do you think is different this time? I mean, I remember, you know, local strategic partnerships, and that was one of many attempts really to bring together particularly public service leaders but also third sector sometimes business as well what 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 do you think makes this different 
the recognition that uh, the, you know, the NHS has a, an inordinately difficult job to deliver the services that, that, it, that it has to deliver. We've got to move the focus, I believe, away from uh, the, the acute system and more into community settings and, and down into prevention and early intervention. And w- when you start to look at that, that agenda, that moves you further, further away from the sort of pure NHS and down into the need to, to, to for that for that partnership working. Certainly post pandemic, I think that is, uh, you know, absolutely the case uh, that that people now do want to make the system work better. They want to improve and, and have to improve people's health outcomes, uh, you know, and that has to be done in a, a truly collaborative way. Uh, and, and as somebody who's got a foot in two camps, in the health camp and the local government camp, what what insights can you offer as to how you get local authorities and health author- and the health system to work most effectively together. What are the enablers and, and what are the kind of potential pitfalls that you've got to avoid? Uh, by chairing both both the health system, the ICS and the and leading the council, the, it's sort of taken away any kind of turf war. So that those sort of you know that slightly sort of protective attitude that we probably all have around our organisations has gone and. Uh, we, we, we very early on in the, the setting up of the ICS uh, made some joint appointments, genuinely joint appointments between the, the ICS and the County Council. So you then started to you know, change people's, the lens that they looked through. Um, and, and I think that, that's, that, has, that has meant that, that you know, the focus, the conversations have, have absolutely been about the patient or the resident. It's also removed some of the perhaps contention around shared budgets. So we have used Section 75 uh, and the Better Care Fund really effectively. So I think I think what you know what I have seen and and and, and that's absolutely what I want to make sure we don't lose is that we do have a joint uh, focus and uh, and the, and the same ambition. And I think that we've got to a sufficient level of maturity. Uh, within Surrey Heartlands that it doesn't now need me or, or any single individual to sit across uh, both systems. I think I think we, we now have a set of people, executives, uh, that, that are absolutely kind of focused on uh, on continuing delivering that way. What, one of the aspects of this system that's, that is opaque, I think, Tim, is this, what, what is the difference between the role of the ICB and the ICP? And and I wrote about this quite a while ago. But no, I, I, I also met officials in DHSC, and it, it wasn't clear to me that they really understood this difference. We were talking about workforce planning and, and the importance of combined workforce planning for the health service, for social care, for public health. And I said to them, well, look, this has got to be something that's overseen by the ICP, because if you're asking for planning to cover local government, in fact, there are more people, I think, working in social care than than health. You can't you can't do this through the health body. It's got to be done through the genuine partnership body. And there seemed to be some confusion amongst officials about the, the status of these two bodies. So so tell me from your perspective what you see as being the difference between the ICB and the ICP and what value added the ICP brings to the construct. So first of all, um, this is, the ICSs have been set up uh, in theory on, on the basis of equal partnerships. So uh, the and you're absolutely right. I don't think even at official level, they really understand the difference between the ICB and the ICP. You know, we are now um, uh, 14 days into the new system, and yet the guidance on integrated care partnerships has yet to be produced. 
uh, by uh, DHSC. Uh, a lot of time was spent in, in setting up the constitutions of the ICB, but very little time and focus on the ICPs. So uh, the, the way I see it is if you take the 100% of uh, the wider determinants, those things that impact on people's life expectancy, my, my expectation is that the Integrated Care Board will own and oversee the 20% that really relate to direct clinical interventions, so the, the, you know, the work of the acute hospitals and the work of GPs and so on. Uh, and I think that, that, that I think, is, is a, a very defined space. It's an NHS space, uh, and it's quite right that the ICB uh, leads on that. Whereas I see the Integrated Care Partnership uh, leading on the other 80% of those wider determinants. And that includes, you know, the, the quality of housing, education, the socioeconomic factors, access to green space, many, many of the things that local government uh, and other partners already have responsibility for. So for me, the ICB, very NHS orientated, but, but of course, stretching over into those other areas as well, but less so the other way. Perhaps as I can use Surrey as an example, we have a 10-year health and well-being strategy. Um, obviously, the ICP uh, in the system now has the responsibility for developing a strategy for the whole system, so to include both you know, local government aspects uh, and also uh, the ICB. Uh, and I see the, the, the so we will use that existing strategy as the basis. Uh, and I see the ICP really very much as the delivery arm. You know, that, that is the, the body that will make sure that all of the partners, whether that's the health system, uh, local government, the voluntary, the charitable, the faith sector, all, all the other organisations uh, that need to come together, that those those will be coordinated by the ICP. And those will be then it will be the ICP that will be very visible uh, within our communities. So if you take, for example, an issue like mental health, it, it, it seems to me that mental health strategy in a system um, needs to be the responsibility of the of the partnership initially because so many of the factors that determine mental health are outside the health service and indeed many of the ways in which we can respond to poor mental health not possibly at the uh, at the kind of most acute end but we can respond to mental health are non-clinical interventions they're around the third sector around friendship around employment around support or all those kinds of things so would you would you agree that if if for example you were asked to produce a, a mental health strategy it would start with the icp Absolutely, absolutely, and again, I would I would split it into two areas. So I would I would I look at it as um, the ICP driving the particularly the prevention and the early intervention agenda. So these are low level interventions, often you know through schools, um, but but really identifying uh, the, the issues around mental health and getting on and addressing those. You know that may be maybe social prescribing, green social prescribing, or something like that. Uh, whereas the medicalised solution in the Mental Health Trust, again, I see that perhaps looking more towards uh, the IC, the ICB as as a you know as a a, 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 a specialist trust. Now, one of the dangers of that structure, I guess, is if you're sitting in the ICB, you're 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 being commissioned, and I don't mean commissioned in the kind of traditional sense. We, we talk about the health service, but you're being kind of commissioned by the ICP in the way that you've described to look at the kind of health element of these strategies. But at the same time, you're also being, as it were, 
commissioned by the centre. You're being given instructions by NHS England and by the, the, the region. Is the responsibility of reconciling local priorities and national priorities, does that lie, do you think, with the ICP or with the ICB? Well, I, I think it starts with a conversation with NHS England about uh, the role of the centre um, and the role of region, because I think one of the perhaps missed opportunities with the rollout of ICS is, is first of all, to not to standardise it, because there, there are local geographical variations and some people have one acute hospital, some have five and so on. But I do think that, that I, I would have would have would have liked to have seen sort of 80 or 90 percent standardisation of how ICSs were, were, were set up and, and structured. Um, but uh, and, and, and actually, I would have probably gone one stage further than that and created one single trust. So to, to dismantle uh, all of the existing individual trust, because, you know, if the ICB owns the strategy uh, for health delivery and uh, the budget, um, you know, there's, there's a potential conflict at that level between the individual trusts and, and you know, what the what the executives and the non-executives might see as, as who they're responsible to. But I think I think we have to get we have to use this as an opportunity to stop or, or, or reduce the, um, the the top down approach of NSE, NHSE. You know, I understand absolutely the need uh, for data, uh, um, but but there's a massive thirst for it, and I'm not absolutely sure what that data is used for. At the end of the day, the, you know, the, those those uh, uh, ICSs locally will know their own communities, they'll know their own systems. Uh, and provided that, that there are there's, that there's certain sort of uh, metrics that they're measured against, really, this is an opportunity to, the, to let them get on and, and deliver those in a more flexible way. And obviously, there's some movement towards reducing the size of uh, the centre. And that's that is to be welcomed. But, but, you know, this really needs to be a bottom up uh, approach. This is about you know, getting in to our communities and really improving those life outcomes. So, Tim, this is, you know, this conversation is really about you, but I, I can't resist trying out on you a couple of the ideas that I've been sharing with leaders as I've been going around the country. So, so first, in terms of, of, of the ultimate way in which we should kind of measure the success of ICSs in terms of, of how they change the health service. And I've suggested that there are kind of three things that, that we're trying to, we would, should try to achieve kind of structurally which we've been trying to treat for a long time, but we haven't succeeded it. So the first is, how do we move from a system that incentivizes activity to one that incentivizes outcomes? Because at the moment in the health service, and this is what the internal market did to a certain extent, we incentivize people to, 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 to perform processes, operations, whatever. ultimately what should matter to us is outcomes. Secondly, and this may not be such an issue for you in Heartlands, because I know you're, I've just looked on the list, you're the least deprived of the 42 ICSs, but nevertheless, how do we focus not just on expressed demand, but on need? Um, again, the health service tends to kind of treat those people who turn up. And what we saw, of course, in COVID was the importance of reaching out into communities who may not be seeking the help that they need. And then thirdly, as you've mentioned, I think, how do we move resources upstream out of acute and secondary and into community primary and and into prevention do, do you think those are the kind of structural changes we want to achieve over the next few years and are you hopeful that that the ICSs will be able to accomplish some of that 
I, I, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the 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 outcomes. Your first point is absolutely crucial to this. So you know, I have in 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 some of our areas in Surrey, uh, you know, in adjoining wards, two adjoining towns, a ten year difference in life expectancy. Uh, you know, that cannot be right. So if we can understand what's causing that, and it will be a combination of all sorts of factors, but if we can understand that, you know, then we can really start to to put in the right interventions and support. So so it, it isn't about activity. Yes, of course, you know, there's elective surgery and that, that needs to happen. But but that's why I think that, that you know, this is, again, the opportunity to to, to really focus on the prevention uh, and pre- preventative agenda and to do things sooner, stop people falling into chronic conditions. So, uh, you know, you're right in terms of Surrey Heartlands, but we do have five areas in the county that are in the top 20% areas of deprivation. It is relative, but actually, you know, somebody, uh, it, 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 it sometimes is more acute if you are in an area of deprivation and surrounded by areas of wealth. But you know we have we have people with 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 significant needs. So uh, you know we have got to we've got to look at those during the during the pandemic. We did a lot of work in terms of uh, the assessment of the impact of COVID on our communities, and we did collect a lot of data. The national statistics are are helpful at one level, but they don't really tell you what is going on down at a PCN level, which is which is where we need to be. So yes, I mean I, you know for me it's it is moving the resources right right to the other end. It is it is about primary care. You know, the fuller stock take, uh, I think, absolutely encapsulates uh, what residents want to see, which is ideally uh, you know, easy access to, to GPs, uh, the ability to get dental appointments and, and eye tests and, and all those sorts of things. Those are the things that people routinely want to access, not necessarily uh, you know, going to A&E or into, into the acute system. So, so I think your three things are absolutely, uh, absolutely right. And I was intrigued, Tim, by by what you said about how things would be easier in a sense if there was just one trust. Now, I, you know, I, I speak spend a lot of time talking to acute leaders, and the conclusion that I've kind of reached is I don't know if you remember this a few years ago when we were talking about general elections. We used to talk about Worcester women, and and we talked about Worcester women because they were the key swing constituency, as it were. If you could get Worcester women to vote for you, then you'd win the general election. And I, I've come to the conclusion, Tim, that acute leaders are, as it were, the Worcester women of the ICS project. You know, you know, we in ICSs will think ICSs are working and will be committed to making them work. Other people might be, for all sorts of reasons, sceptical. But if acute leaders come to see ICSs as helping them, adding value, making their life easier, they'll be on our side. And then we, you know, no structure lasts forever, but we could be here for, for, for many years and really make a difference. If, however, acute leaders think ICSs are kind of bureaucratic monsters, second-guessing what they do, interfering with what they do, then they will be marching into DHSE. They'll be marching into number 10 and saying this isn't working. And I know, because of my experience working for Tony Blair, that, you know, acute sector leaders, politicians understand who they are. They understand what someone who runs a hospital is. They, they, they seem like they're rather impressive people. So if we don't persuade 
providers and particularly i think acute providers that ics is adding value we could be we could be in trouble do, do you think do you think that's right and how how are your relations with the acute sector in surrey heartlands uh, if we don't get the acute chief executives on side th- this won't work i mean they will they will they will fight their corner quite rightly so too uh, you know they i i routinely hear them use the phrase patient safety as as a reason why uh, as much as they might like to to support and comply, that they they can't. Uh, you know, it's 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 a little bit analogous to um, it, in the world of local government in a two tier local government system where you have a county council with you know responsibilities for adult social care and and, and children services and highways, and then you have the district and borough councils uh, that do planning and, and and waste collection and so on. And you know they're, 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 there's a different sovereignty for those organisations, different responsibilities. Um, but but coming together and working co- collaboratively can can extract significant benefits, both in terms of the improved services, but also take out you know uh, duplicated costs. You know, for me, I think what, what, what with the acute system in, in Surrey, we have five acute hospitals. Uh, and what would be good, you know, as a starting point, perhaps to that conversation, is to recognise uh, the uh, those hospitals that have particular specialisms, and and create sort of centres of excellence. So so they're not all doing the same thing or having to do the same thing as a sort of district general hospital, but but they specialise in areas. And I think that that would be good for for recruitment and for retention. Uh, and then I think you sort of start to move the conversation into a slightly different space because at that point they're not then feeling threatened that the ICS is is going to abolish them or, or, or take them over. They're being recognised and investing in those 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 specialisms. We in Surrey we've had some very very strong personalities within the acute system, uh, uh, you know, and I have a lot of respect for. But we have to move this conversation on. We have to really now uh, start to look at ways in which the health system can uh, modernize if that's the right word but 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 we can't be in a situation where uh, the the funding that there is a continual need for additional funding we've got to address uh, the integration of health and social care and you know and that and that so yeah there's an early conversation we all need to have uh, with the between uh, between the social care uh, providers uh, and and the uh, acute hospitals around step down facilities that's got to be good to to empty acute beds and also to to have a center where you can assess people uh, properly before they're put back into a, a social care package yeah that's i mean that's really interesting to because in, in a sense what i've been saying to acute leaders uh, is that the deal here needs to be this Acute leaders need to roll up their sleeves and help ICSs to become the organizations they need them to be. And I had a great example of this a couple of weeks ago. I was invited by an ICS chair to come into her her system. There were acutes in her system that did have a collaborative. They had a committee in common, but they hadn't really done much together. And levels of trust weren't that high. And I just went in to facilitate a day. And that, that day was not really about the ICS telling them what to do. It was about the ICS convening them and encouraging them to think about what their strengths were, what their challenges were, and to get them to work more effectively together. So I think the, you know, the chair of the ICS was saying, look, as long as you as a collaborative 
are using your resources effectively, as most effectively as you can. I don't want to interfere with the day-to-day running of things. You'll know what's best. But what you've got to do is you've got to demonstrate to me that you're going to use resources as effectively um, as possible. And I think that if we can get this right, if acute leaders can can see ICSs as an enabler, and if ICSs can behave as an enabler and a convener rather than, as it were, trying to get too much into the operational weeds, that's how it could be different. And one of the reasons I say that, Tim, is that I remember, you know, I've only been in the contract for a year, but I, I wrote a set of blogs in the RSA, which I ran before several years ago. And, and what I wrote about, about public service reform and about places is that we invest in bricks but we don't invest in mortar. We invest in cogs. We don't invest in oil. That, that very often the problem in places and public services is is the connectedness. And and for me, if ICS is fundamentally saw their role as 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 binding the system, enabling it, getting the different parts to work effectively together, well, that would be. We've never had really a big public body that that sees itself in that role. Is that naive? Uh, I hope not. I hope not, because I think that's absolutely what 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 uh, needs to happen, and what how the ICS should be positioning itself. We all need to remind ourselves. I mean, you know, I'm an elected politician, so I, I spend my day living and breathing what my residents want. Uh, you know, and, and every four years they test that, and and everything I do has to be genuinely in the best interests of my residents. And I think that, that that is a test that we should all apply. So if, if I'm an acute chief, a hospital chief executive, what is absolutely in the best interest of my patients? And sometimes that will be me delivering that service. Sometimes it will be, you know, enabling it. But actually, often it will be passing that to or, or, you know, that, that individual signposting them somewhere else. So I think if, if we start to lose sight of that and really start to think about our own organisation as, as the being rather than the patient. We get ourselves into into all sorts of difficulties, and I, and I, I often use that's the same analogy with um, children's centres. So uh, you know, we, we're in Surrey. We've we've moved away from having children's centres because it wasn't the building that delivered the service; it was the people within the building, and actually taking the social workers out and putting them into the community, into people's homes. You know, it actually meant they were getting to the people that really needed it rather than those that turned up at the children's centre. This has to be used as that opportunity to reflect as a system, can we do this better? And um, and let's put aside our own sort of uh, agendas and, and sort of protectionism and, and look at it through through the eyes of of the patient because you know the, uh, you know more than anybody, I'm sure you hear it every day, the sort of the complaints that the patients have about navigating their way through the system you know and I've had personal experience of that with a with my my, my younger daughter my wife was a GP uh, she she was a translator for me whenever we went to see a consultant it's a very difficult system for people to uh, to understand and uh, and find their way around so so let, let's 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 have that conversation and you know let's make sure that people aren't feeling threatened but but actually, I uh, can see a way in which doing this collaboratively can be better. My sense is that whether at system level, place level, or even in particular areas of, of, of transformation that we're aiming for, that I I come across the same kind of four big big things e- each time. And I want to test this out with you and maybe get your reflections on how they feel from a Surrey perspective. So 
So these four things are, are, are firstly kind of vision and purpose, secondly, data, thirdly, finance, and fourthly, relationships. And so let's start with the first. So that it, critical to effective collaboration is to invest the time to ensure that people really do share a common vision, a common sense of purpose. Why are we doing this? together what what do you see do you feel that there is emerging in surrey that that strong sense of shared mission and purpose we in 2019 i think 18 actually we went out to uh, all of our partners uh, to create a collective 2030 vision for surrey um and and that vision in one line is that no one is left behind and it is addressing the inequality of life expectancy and the inequality of of opportunity and we have three priority areas through the health and well-being board around addressing mental health uh, physical health and opportunity uh, and we and i've created in surrey um a, a forum uh, for all of the system leaders you know, it's the police the universities vcfs health and we come together on a quarterly basis and we constantly test that vision is that still the right thing so yes i mean i think in surrey we do have a system that is absolutely behind that uh, and you know and and tests and measures whether it's actually you know actually actually delivering it so that's the that's the first thing is is vision and that big vision but also what are the kind of priorities that you share so i know and it's not surprising given that, that claire fuller is is your chief executive that the primary reform is i know one of your big priorities so this is the first thing is shared vision shared priorities the second is data and for me data is the great enabler that that if we can you, you talked earlier about feeling that sometimes nhse require you to generate data for the sake of it but i'm talking here about data as a real enabling tool um, you know, partly in terms of understanding what's going on in, in the health service and flows of patients, et cetera, but also in terms of population health, the, the scope to share data between local government health service and other partners as part of that project of trying to, to, to intervene further upstream. You cannot run any business without 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 data, without understanding what is what is going on within the business. Again, we we've set up the Surrey Office of Data Analytics. It's chaired by the Chief Constable of Surrey, uh, and that is um, creating effectively a data warehouse uh, with NHS data, with local government, with with the police. Uh, but we've also um, got involved the University of Surrey, and in particular their analytics team, but also their sociologists because. You know, if, if you're looking at a community, uh, it, it is all about people and people's behaviour. So understanding that and what drives people and motivates people actually can be really useful information when you are working out what interventions would be helpful. So you can't you can't do this without without good quality data. And then finance, which feels to me as though it's more often on the kind of negative side of the ledger than the positive side and not just because there isn't in often there isn't enough money but i mean that financial incentives can often feel like they contradict the objectives of collaboration I've talked to people and say well, why are you not collaborating integrating they go, well that's not the way that the money incentivizes our, our behavior so making sure the financial system incentivizes people to collaborate that's another really critical component isn't it it is. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, so I've lived in a world of local government for the last 20 years. Every year, our funding from government reduces, uh, but we're still expected to deliver the same, uh, the, the, you know, the, the same services, the same level of services for our residents. 
I, I do wonder sometimes actually if there were the same discipline within the NHS that there is a defined budget at the start of the year uh, and and you have to deliver within it. You know, some would say, well, it's it's that's impossible because it's a demand-led service, but so is adult social care, and and so is uh, so are children's services for those with children with additional needs. The budget for the Surrey County Council is one and a half billion, and the budget for Surrey Hartlands is one and a half billion. So we have exactly the same exactly the same issues. So it, it is important that people um, you understand how the finances work, how you can take out uh, costs, and that may well be uh, coming together around shared back office services. But equally now, again, which is why the collaboration between the system is so important, you know, we can make that public pound go so much further through the through the Better Care Fund, through Section 75 agreements. You know, so stop duplicating effort and, and really focus on on how you you know how you use that money effectively. So I, I think you know the the structure of the the uh, the financing of, uh, of NHS is very different from local government. And I think probably there are some things it could learn from the way in which local governments uh, operate their budgets. Yeah. And then that takes me to the final kind of ish dimension, Tim, which is relationships. And 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 I feel that, and I don't just feel this about ICSs, I felt this for many, many years, that that often we try to build collaborative bricks using relational straw, that, that we we expect people to to trust each other, to be generous to each other, to take risks together. But we don't actually invest the time in ensuring that people really have got that kind of quality of relationship. And this event I did uh, a couple of weeks ago for an ICS chair, I spent quite a lot of time in that event just enabling the people there to have quite a deep personal conversation with each other to get to the point at which it felt like they were the people who were part of the same team. Do, do you agree that we do need, you know, we are going to have to have really strong relationships so we're going to make this collaboration work, aren't we? Uh, without question. And I think the really interesting thing sort of post COVID is, you know, we all got used to um, uh, uh, remote working and, and uh, teams meetings and so on. Um, and, 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 you know, at a level, those were absolutely fine. I mean, it kept everything going and, and, and was, was essential. But, but, but you, you don't build and couldn't build those relationships those personal relationships and and you know within within the within heartlands and within the county council we regularly have away days we find time to sit down and you know whether it's having a quick bite to eat or something but just just to get it away from that transactional relationship to to really knowing a little bit about that other person and what motivates them and uh, and so on that is what then makes the wheels turn uh, yeah, more easily and, and faster. So I, I think you can't run these organisations digitally. The uh, people are hugely important uh, within the system, and 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 finding ways that people can work together, trust each other, definitely delivers a, a much better outcome. Well, Tim, it's been great. Uh, talking with you. I know that our paths will cross often at um, ICS network events, but it will be great to get you back onto Health on the Line in, I don't know, about 18 months or something and see uh, how things are working out. But, uh, but until then, thank you for joining me and good luck. Matthew, thank you very much. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. <laughs>